Let's have a look together at this reading from Matthew chapter 6. And just to reassure you, this is not actually a talk about giving. Uh, This is simply the next step in our walk through Matthew. But it does have something to say about our attitude to stuff, to possessions, to what we own, and in particular has a lot to say about where we place the priorities in our life. You'll know that we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. We're working our way through this unveiling of Jesus, who Jesus really is, what he really said, what he really taught, and how we respond. I'm just going to simply read to you a few verses from the end of chapter 6. It's page 971, and uh, this is Jesus speaking to the crowd. Therefore, Jesus said, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You're not much more valuable than they. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to their life? Why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what should we eat? Or what should we drink? Or what should we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every time I've ever read that very last verse of uh, Matthew 6, each day has enough trouble of its own, I'm always expecting us to go suddenly very Pentecostal and hear a big amen. Uh, Because that's probably one of those sentences in the Bible that is the most straightforward to nod to, the most straightforward to agree with, the most straightforward to actually go, well, at least on this occasion... The Bible sounds utterly realistic. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The problem with this passage is that the whole of it could come across as simply one of those sort of Instagram-designed memes, one of these aphorisms that simply is meant to spread well. Some stuff that, well, is pretty obvious. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Okay, like, pass on. Great. See, Jesus was doing it long before anybody else had thought of it. But actually, I want to suggest that where this sits within Matthew and where this sits within what Jesus is saying, and when you get to the guts of what it is he's trying to say, it's far more radical, far more uncomfortable, but also potentially far more life-changing than any poster or uh, social media saying. Because at its heart, it speaks to where our hearts are. At its heart, it asks the question, what comes number one? What do we worry about the most? What's most important to us? Now, in Matthew's Gospel, it comes right in the middle of three chapters worth of Jesus' preaching, of his teaching, what we call the Beatitudes, or as one person memorably um, changed the name to, the Beautiful Attitudes. Jesus talking about attitudes of life, a way of living that is beautiful in God's eyes. 
Almost certainly what Matthew's done is collected together Jesus' teaching across many days, many weeks, many months, across the three years of his life and brought a, a saying here, a teaching there, and put them together uh, in a way that follows a thread through in places, in a way that reinforces his message, in a way that gives us, in an incredibly compact passage, an unbelievably rich diet. My, my hunch is that if you were to sit down and simply read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 in one sitting, and then you gave yourself enough time to think about it properly, you'd be there still in months to come. Every word, every verse has something to say to us. Every verse, in my book at least, is challenging and uncomfortable, but also richly rewarding. And right here at the heart of Matthew 6 seems to be almost a naive optimism about life that sits on one level quite uncomfortably with what's come before. Some of Jesus' other teachings have felt like quite hard line. He's talked about the fact that it's not just what goes on in the outside that's important, it's what's going on on the inside. He seems to set this bar incredibly high about what sort of people we're to be in, in our desires, in our actions. And now he says, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. You think, Jesus, really? Do you not know my life? Do you have no idea what I'm going through? Do you have no idea what my friends and family or neighbors are going through? How could you possibly turn around to anybody and say, don't worry, well, that was a song from my childhood, don't worry, be happy. You think, well, you know, it's great to sort of hum along to, but it doesn't really help very much with life. In fact, it's a good way of getting punched, I suspect. Talk up to somebody who's upset or deeply anxious about something, something terrible has just happened to them or they're worried about somebody else, and you go, don't worry. Don't worry. Now, we have to nail straight away the sense that Jesus is simply being naive here. Because when you listen to the whole of what he's saying, it's clear that he doesn't imagine for a second that you don't have anything worth worrying about. I've already read to you. Each day has enough trouble of its own. He knows that my days and your days, sometimes, maybe often, maybe always, depending on your experience, are full of trouble, of worries. That's not what he's saying. Nor is he saying that the things we worry about are not important. Um, Verse 32, he talks about all these things, what we drink, what we eat, what we wear. And he says, the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly father, he doesn't, listen, he doesn't say, your heavenly father considers those a bit beneath him and should be a bit beneath you because you're too spiritual for that. What he actually says is, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, your heavenly father knows that you need them. We go through these different stages, don't we? If we're lucky as a child, we never have to particularly think about what we eat, what we wear, what we drink, apart from you know, throwing a tantrum when it isn't exactly what we want or deciding at a particular age that we're going to decide what we're going to wear and that you know, red goes really well with orange and green and purple and we're just going to wear it come what may. That's fine. But beyond that, we don't have to worry. And then we get to a stage where we start to have to stand on our own two feet. For some of us, it's when we leave home. Maybe you've got a first job. Maybe you go to college or university. And for some of us, it really begins to bite then when other people start depending on us. Maybe a partner, maybe kids. Then there comes another stage where the kids are starting to, we're beginning to hit this stage, where the kids are starting to think about leaving home and you're starting to think, oh, paying for, you know, helping them out with a first place or 
university fees or whatever it is. That sense of the, the, the worries that, that, that build up in us can be huge. The worries that come along through life are right there. But what Jesus says is this. There is a different way of approaching those real and realistic worries that puts them in a different context, that gives us a different confidence, and that helps us to deal with the stuff of life in a way that will bring us joy in the midst of our worries, that will bring us satisfaction in the midst of our needs. The heart of it has to do with what comes first in life, but even before that, to do with who is worrying about us even before we worry about ourselves. Verse 34. I agree. Verse 34. Therefore, do not worry. He says, therefore, do not worry about anything. Okay. Go back to verse 26. There is somebody that is worrying about you. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Then just a little bit later on at the beginning of verse 30, if this is how God clothes the grass of the field. Jesus' heart that he wants to communicate with us is not, as I say, that you're never to worry, nor that there's nothing to worry about, nor that you don't need stuff, but that actually you need to set those needs and those worries in the context of the fact that somebody does, maybe it's the wrong word, the worrying for you. You have a Father in heaven, a heavenly Father who loves you even more than you love yourself. You have a heavenly Father who cares for you and for your needs even more than you care about yourself. And if you're a parent worrying about your children, you have a heavenly Father who cares even about your children or about your relatives or about your friends or your neighbors even more than you worry about them. It's hard to really believe that, isn't it? As human beings, we're pretty much hardwired to assume that if we don't look after number one, nobody else is going to do it. You know, maybe if we fall in love, we begin to believe that somebody else loves us back, that somebody else cares for us as much as we care about ourselves. But we still, if push comes to shove, have that sort of default position of, yeah, but, you know, I'm really responsible for worrying about me. I'm really the person who's going to care most about me. I've got to look after myself because nobody else is going to do it when push comes to shove. Jesus wants to say, hang on a minute. When you look at the birds as they fly by, when you look at a beautiful flower in a field, there is a heavenly father, their creator God, who cares for them. Well, if he cares for them, do you really think you're worth less? Do you really think that God cares for you less than for them? Uh, you'll know that I have joined um, the uh, St. Margaret's Isleworth ranks of dog walkers uh, fairly recently. And I've gone from 10 years ago being really, I have to confess, quite scared of dogs. Cover your ears. Um, really quite scared of dogs and not terribly convinced as to their worth um, in family life. In fact, over my dead body would we ever get a dog. Um, to now being entirely besotted with this bundle of brown fluff that is called Rolo. And... I find myself ridiculously attached to him and ridiculously caring about his needs. I once stood on his foot. Don't call the RSPCA. It was an accident. I wasn't doing anything terrible. I was trying to get a bumblebee out of the conservatory. 
first world troubles. And, um, and I literally stood back and there was Rolo. And there was a howling and a screaming like you wouldn't... Yeah, I know, I'm sorry, I'm disturbing and worrying some of you here. And he was fine, just to tell you the end of the story before we get there. But do you know what? I was panicked. I found myself, you know, heart beating faster, feeling a bit tearful. What have I done? Have I broken his foot? And about an hour later, when I'd settled down a little bit, I thought, he's a dog. He's an animal. What am I doing? What's happening to me? The fact is, we, even we, as fairly uncaring creatures, are capable of looking after a pet with love and with care, let alone another human being. It's the sort of point Jesus is making, but then some. If God, your heavenly Father, cares enough for the flowers of the field, they they look stunning. If he cares enough for the birds of the air that they have plenty to eat, surely he cares for you even more. We're to set our worries and our needs in the context of the God who loves us even more than we love ourselves, who cares for us even more than we care for ourselves. But secondly, we're also to set our worries and our needs in the context of what we've already got. I think that's what's behind uh, these words about um, why do you worry about what you eat or what you drink? Surely your life is worth more than these things. In other words, there is something about saying, well, it does matter to me what I get to eat. And it does matter to me what I drink or what I wear. And it's okay to worry about those things, to need those things. But I also have to be aware that actually God has already given me so much. Simply in the gift of life. Simply in the breath that I breathe. Simply in what I do have. Rather than what I don't have. Uh, Many of us had the privilege, it's many years ago now, and I really hope he'll get a chance to visit us again before too long. Many of us had the privilege of meeting Joshua, uh, Joshua Apondo. It must be now, I don't know, seven or eight years ago, I think, that he was last able to join us. Uh, He's a a, a Kenyan uh, pastor, uh, works in the church, uh, uh, the Anglican church in Kenya, and we support him in prayer, we support him financially in his work there. And um, Sometimes uh, four or five times a week, sometimes just once a week, I get a WhatsApp message or an email, usually very, very long, um, and I never miss reading a word of them because they are encouraging and stirring and challenging and exciting, and they make me laugh and occasionally they make me cry. But there is one thread that has run through Joshua's emails for the last eight years since I first met him, and it's this. Here is a man who in my terms, in my world, in my culture, has had in his life almost nothing. When we first met him, he and his um, then wife, who very um, soon afterwards died um, of the the back of malaria, um, they lived in a tiny shack in what we would describe as as really a slum area. It was often the sound of gunfather, often violence in the streets. And in the midst of that, he not only pastored uh, in a church, looked after young people, but they also... But incredibly, with their nothing, adopted and fostered children who had been made orphans because their parents had died um, often from HIV-AIDS. And this thread that ran through was, he was astonishingly, consistently, unwaveringly grateful for what he had. And he hardly ever worried about what he had not. And the only times he worried about what he had not was when he didn't have enough to give to others. It's the only time he seemed to worry. It's still true today. He has a little bit more, but not a lot more. And it's been my experience in my life, maybe it has been in yours too, that it it isn't those who have the least 
who struggle with gratitude, it's those who actually in these world's terms have the most. That those of us actually who have plenty in terms of the world as a whole really struggle to see what we've already got in our hands and to look up at God and just say, thank you. What an astonishing privilege it is to, have, to live in this country, to have a relatively safe community, to have a roof over our heads, to have food on the tables, to have clothes that we're able to wear to come to church. It is an astonishing thing. And the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere to feel guilt. It tells us to feel gratitude. It doesn't anywhere tell us that those things are not allowed. It says they're a gift to respond with gratitude and with generosity to others. I think that's what Jesus means by saying, you know, you worry about what you're going to eat or drink, but actually isn't the gift of your body and of your life the place to start? So we're to set our worries and our needs firstly in the context of discovering that God, our Heavenly Father, cares for us even more than we do and for those that we love. And secondly, that we're to set our worries and our needs in the context of what we already have, not what we don't yet have and to respond with gratitude and grace. But there is a final thing. And actually, it is perhaps the theme that joins together the whole of chapter 5, 6, and 7. And in many ways, you could see it say that it's the theme of Jesus' life. It's the theme that links together all the things that we might talk about what Christian lifestyle looks like. Because Jesus, when he talks about the way we should live, absolutely is not interested in moralism. He's not interested in saying to you, be good. And he's definitely not interested in saying to you, be good or else. Nor is he interested in saying to you, be good, because then God will dot, dot, dot. What Jesus simply says is, live a life remembering who is the true king. Live life remembering who is the true king. Verse 33 sums it up. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. In other words, simply get your priorities straight. Live in the light of who the true ruler of our lives and the world is. Live in the light of his kingdom. The Bible basically says that every human being has an allegiance and that fundamentally that allegiance is either going to be uh, spelt out, lived out as an allegiance to self or to the one who loves us and made us and has given everything for us. And depending on which way you're going and in any given moment in the choices you make, which of those you give priority to, it will shape and transform your life. When my allegiance is to self, then that's the center of gravity for my life. That's going to affect the way I spend my money or the way I give my money. It's going to affect the way I use my time, the words that I speak in public and behind the scenes. It's going to affect what sort of dad I am or husband I am or, uh, or friend that I am. It's going to affect what I'm like at work. It's going to affect what I am when nobody's watching. If my allegiance is primarily, it's about me. But the same is also gloriously true when we recognize that the true king, the king of all kings, is this King Jesus, the one who made us, the one who loves us more than we love ourselves, the one who cares for us, and cared for us so much that he lived the life we couldn't live of perfect obedience, that he died the death we simply mustn't face alone, and that he rose in glory to give us new life. So how does that work out? 
How does this set in my worries and my cares in the context of a God who loves me more than I do, in the context of what I've already received rather than what I don't yet have, and most of all in the context of who the real king is? Well, I can't tell you that. That's not a preacher's cop-out. It's simply true because it will look a bit different from you like it, than it does for me. It was a little bit of what we heard Nick say. He heard this radical um, sort of story from somebody standing at the front and saying, well, the way it worked out for me was, at the age of 20-something, I worked out how much I needed to live on, and everything else I earned after that, I gave away. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Circumstances change. What if you get married, or you've got kids, or you, you move area, or you need this? You know, that, that's not the point. That's a way of going, oh, well, I don't have to think about that. So the point that Nick was making is actually every part of our life is to be thought about. Every part of our life is to be brought to the God who loves us. Every part of our life is to be offered to the one who's already given everything for us. And then for each of us, sometimes on our own, sometimes with somebody that we love, sometimes in a household, sometimes as a whole community, we respond and say, okay, if you love me that way, if you've given everything for me that way, if you are the king of all kings, so what does that mean for this part of my life? What does it mean for the way I spend my money? What does it mean for the way I use my time? What does it mean for what sort of parent I'm going to be or what sort of employee I'm going to be or what sort of manager I'm going to be? What does it mean? And be willing to hear God answer and to stir us up and to shape us. doesn't mean it's easy. doesn't mean it's always happy, straightforward. certainly doesn't mean God always gives us what we want. There are times when it will feel like God doesn't give us what we need either. Life can be really hard. Walking with Jesus doesn't make it easy, but it does make it richly satisfying and good because we're walking the way that we were created to walk with the people we were meant to be.